You're listening to Ask the Expert on Sprott Money News. Welcome back to the Sprott Money News and SprottMoney.com Ask the Expert series. It is January 2021, and it's time for your first Ask the Expert interview of the brand new year. And joining us is a special guest this month, a returning guest, Luke Groman. Luke, uh, many of you are familiar with him. He runs the great newsletter, Forest for the Trees. He's a big presence on Twitter. Uh, you'll find him uh, being interviewed in many different media spaces as an expert on the financial markets. And it's a real treat to have him join us again here at Sprott Money News. Luke, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Craig. It's, uh, I always love being here. And before we get started, just a reminder, these are brought to you by SprottMoney.com, a leader in online precious metal sales and then, of course, precious metal storage. Now, of course, always a good time to invest in precious metals. And although inventory is still a little tight, you want to be sure to check out our recently added products at SprottMoney.com. You can order them from us directly through the website. But if you want to talk to a real person, just pick up the phone and give us a call. 888-861-0775. And one of our representatives will be happy to help you out and explain how the whole process works. Luke, uh, before we get started, why don't you take a second and explain how your whole process works. Tell everybody about Forest for the Trees. Absolutely. So we are a uh, macroeconomic research firm, and, and uh, we aggregate a large amount of publicly available information from a whole disparate array of resources, and we aggregate it in a pretty unique manner, uh, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks, because it's been my experience over 25 years in, in uh, the investments business and in finance that excess returns accrue to those positioned to benefit from developing economic bottlenecks. And so we're really just trying to tie the big picture um, to uh, different sectors and macroeconomic themes for our clients. We publish uh, both institutional and uh, retail investment research products, and you can find out a lot more about us at our website at fftt-llc.com. We'll make sure we put that web address right here on the opening page so that people will be sure to go there. And if I might just add, Luke, I, at my site, TF Metals Report, I know we've got quite a few people that also subscribe to your site, and I never hear anything but raves about how valuable Thank your you. service is. And if I might just plug it for a second, I mean, what's great, Luke, is you not, you know, you don't try to make it some exclusive thing for hedge fund people or something like that. It's 10 bucks a month, right? Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's almost uh, 15, 20 bucks a month. It's uh, for the, the retail product. It's 198 bucks a year. Okay. So it's, uh, um, it's very, very uh, uh, competitively priced for retail investors. I mean, for crying out loud, uh, that's money well spent. And so if I might just give my own uh, thumbs up to it. Uh, encourage everybody to check it out. Luke is on top of things. And, and it's a good thing, too, because I've got a list of seven questions for you, Luke, that are pretty wide-ranging. Uh, ever since we let people know you were going to be the guest this month, they've been sending in questions. I've consolidated some because we've gotten so many. But I think these seven are all right in your wheelhouse. I suppose we might as well dive right in, if that's okay. Absolutely. Let's go. Well, my friend, we're at a on the edge of a crazy time here with this new Biden administration. And, and uh, you know, we've just installed a former Fed official, Fed chairwoman at the head of the Treasury Department. So there's kind of a, a little marriage, looks to me at least, being joined between Treasury and the Fed. Almost, you know, right near overt now. Um, so along those lines, are we headed down this modern monetary theory path? The question specifically was, why is there a need for 
entitlement reform? Uh, why is there a need even to pay taxes if the Fed is just simply going to be monetizing all the debt going forward? Yeah, I think it really comes down to the international trade value of the dollar uh, is really the answer to that question, which is to say uh, there's mathematically, theoretically, uh, mechanically no reason that the uh, that the, the the Fed couldn't just print all the money needed to fund all of the U.S. government's operations, et cetera, um, and that taxes and are, are, are banished. The thing that would uh, happen, or the release valve in that case, would be the international trade value of the dollar. So the dollar would fall sharply. Uh, inflation would rise since we import as much as we do. Uh, and so I think it really comes down to that desire to um, balance economic growth against uh, the international trade value of the dollar is really why uh, the, the, the why for, for, for taxes, which is effectively, uh, I think, a key, a key tenet of, of the modern monetary theory uh, worldview. Um, and so I, that, that's, uh, that's, that's why I, I think it ultimately comes down to the dollar. I mean, you know what? I'm going to follow up my own question, Luke, because I've been thinking about this recently. Um, what if all the central banks went down the same path together since you know they're all valued against each other in things like the dollar index? What if the ECB and the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, what if they all went down the monetary modern monetary theory path at the same time? Relatively speaking, maybe they'd all devalue at the same rate and you wouldn't have a change. No, I, that's true. You would expect that the relative valuations between fiat currencies wouldn't change much where I think you would see that happen or where the release valve in that case would be you would see a, a run out of fiat currency in total into more finite assets. So mm -hmm. you would expect to see uh, and out of and out of global bond markets as well, in theory. Um, uh, so you'd expect to see uh, stock markets rise and, and rise relative to bond markets. You'd expect to see homes rise. You'd expect to see farmland rise. You would expect to see gold prices rise. You'd expect to see Bitcoin rise. Uh, and so you'd have basically um, what people would might otherwise call an everything bubble would actually be uh, the outcome of all central banks doing some version uh, of that where uh they effectively finance their governments. Uh, let's move on to the second question. This gets back to central banks as well. You know, um, <clears throat> I've been writing a lot about uh, the Fed's history of trying to manage the accumulated debt through uh, yield curve control. That's what they did coming out of World War II. It's the last time they used that policy uh, when we had debt to GDP ratios like this in the U.S. And so that gets to this term that the question Questioner sent in, inflate away the debt. This this person just wants to know, what does that mean? Uh, how, how do you inflate away the debt? Can you put that in English for folks? Sure. So I think the best way to think about that is to refer back to a, uh, a BlackRock white paper put out by three former senior central bank officials. Uh, and this was published in August 2019. And the officials in question were former Fed Vice Chair Stan Fisher, former Swiss National Bank uh, President Philip Hildebrand, and former Bank of Canada Governor Jean Boivin. And the, uh, they, they very clearly, you know, the way they phrase it is, is going direct. And so 
they said in the next downturn, central banks are going to have to go direct and basically partner with the fiscal authorities or the governments. And so the way you inflate away the debt, as they described, is you get the fiscal authorities to uh, stimulate or spend a bunch of money. And then the central banks act in government bond markets uh, to cap yields to ensure that the ensuing rise in uh, bond yields uh, as they respond to the rise in inflation due to the increase in government spending, significant increase in government spending, to ensure that the rise in bond yields does not offset the economic stimulative impact of the stimulus. And so basically you have governments go into their economies spend a bunch of money to drive GDP higher, and then central banks prevent interest rates from responding to that increase in GDP. And what you end up with are negative real interest rates and potentially significantly so. And so to the extent that GDP grows four, five, six, eight, 10% or more nominally, depending on the level of stimulus, while interest rates are not allowed to rise above say 2% or one and a half percent, Every year that goes by, the debt to GDP ratio falls by uh, the gap in in GDP growth nominally relative to the interest rate paid. And so in in theory, you earn your way out of that over time. That's Hmm. that's the theory of it. Um, It's dependent on the monetary authority's ability to stimulate enough. Uh, The release valve in that case. Uh, goes from being interest rates to being the size of the central bank's balance sheet. And it effectively amounts to central banks financing governments. It's interesting. You mentioned that paper. I have to look that one up because when you say partner with fiscal authorities, that's exactly what Chairman Powell's been talking about. And then you think about the this marriage that I was mentioning earlier, you know, installing a former Fed head at Treasury. Yeah, it, it was it was very eye-opening paper. Um, I mean, it, it was before the COVID crisis and it it laid out, here's what we're going to do in the next crisis. And uh, it's what they started doing. And it proved very instructive uh, as you moved into 2020 uh, in terms of just understanding what the playbook likely was and positioning assets accordingly. Yeah. All right. Moving on to question three. Hey, another central bank question. Some have suggested that the central banks now desire a higher gold price. Do you agree with that? I actually do. Uh, It ties back to this point about uh, having negative real interest rates uh, as a way of earning their way out of the the debt position over time. And so um, the if you, the connection to gold is that if you look at gold's price over time, it is very tightly correlated to uh, inverse real rates. So in other words, the lower real rates go, which are just nominal rate minus inflation, the lower real rates go, the higher gold goes. And so through that longstanding relationship, paradoxically, central banks are now in a position where if gold prices fall, the implied message is that real rates are rising. And if real rates rise with, for example, United States debt to GDP at 130 percent and rising, global sovereign debt to GDP high pretty much around the world, uh, that is signaling that Um, or will quickly signal or will quickly lead to sovereign debt crises uh, around the world. Uh, Debt is becoming less payable if real rates rise on debt loads that are bigger than GDP, particularly for those economies that are very interest rate sensitive, uh, as the United States is. And so paradoxically, by virtue of how the system has evolved, 
the central banks now need negative real rates, uh, increasingly negative real rates, to make these extraordinarily high debt levels uh, economic to continue to service without causing a crisis. And so if they need increasingly negative real rates, uh, they paradoxically need a higher gold price to communicate that real rates are getting increasingly negative. And if gold is falling, uh, it's actually communicating the opposite. It's communicating historically uh, falling gold price meant that the U.S. and uh, the, the, the governments were becoming more solvent um, and a falling gold price now because the debt levels are so high through that connection to the real interest rate is or that correlation to the real interest rate. A falling gold price now tells you that governments will soon be less solvent. Uh, not more solvent. So I do actually think they they need a higher gold price. So, you know, when will they realize that? Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I suspect they know it on some level, but um, I, I actually do agree with that statement. Before we get to question four, I just want to urge anybody who considers themselves a long-term precious metals investor or even mining share investor, go back and listen to that answer again. Just kind of hit rewind <laughs> about two minutes. Listen to that answer again. I think it's very enlightening, Luke. Thank you. Thank um, you. Number four then is it fo fo focuses on silver this time. A lot of folks think we are in an early stages of a new commodity bull market. You can see that on some of the some of the charts. Uh, would you expect silver to now outperform gold if that's the case? You know, historically, that's been a, a hallmark, I guess, of, of of a new secular bull market or a bull markets and commodities is that you see silver rise relative to gold. You see that gold to silver ratio fall. Um, uh, and, and so to me, the key question is, are we in a new commodity bull market or not? I, I, I think we probably are, uh, just given uh, where uh where things stand and some of the things we talked about before in terms of the needs of governments to stimulate, spend on infrastructure, uh, et cetera. So I, I think the answer, if I you know, gun to my head, I'd probably say, yes, I think that makes sense. I do think we'll probably get some fits and starts here in the short run uh, relative to that. Um, but that ultimately that that's, that's, that's probably, uh, I think silver probably is set to do really well over the next uh, you know, over the next several years, just given uh, what we're seeing on the monetary side, but then even what we're seeing sort of secularly uh, in terms of increasing interest or, or mandates to move towards electrified vehicles. And, and um, uh, I think silver has a big role to play there, as well as in some of the other, um, when you start talking about some of the possibility of Green New Deals and global resets around climate change, it seems to me that, that silver has a role to play there, and certainly other commodities uh, have a role to play there, and some of the metals and what have you. So to me, I, I think you have both a monetary and a fundamental case as you look out over the next cycle that, uh, that silver is probably pretty well positioned. All right, my friend, we've hit the quarter pole, and we are turning into the home stretch with three questions to go. This one might be kind of a tough one to to give a quick answer on, but I, I would just have you just, just tell us what you think. Um, home prices obviously continue to rise. And uh, in some cities, it's just getting um, crazy again. Uh, a lot of first-time buyers are being priced out. I know I see apartment buildings going up every place, right? Um, how, do, how does this problem get addressed uh, in the years ahead, especially in this kind of hyperinflation, modern monetary theory world that we seem to be headed toward? It, it's a tough question. It's um, you can 
you know, you, you can say, okay, you break the question down, right? So home prices are getting too high. How do we get home prices lower? The market way is you just raise rates and blow up the housing market. But the problem is, is you blow up the economy too. And so it's, it's unclear to me whether that increases affordability or not um, uh, on, a, on a net basis. I mean, on, nominally it would because home prices would fall, but you know, home price is not cheaper if you lose your job. <laughs> Even if the home price gets cut in half, if you have no income, it's not cheaper. So that's the factors you know to balance off on sort of a market perspective. I think I think some of the 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 other I'll say problem of it is is when you look at the distribution of who owns the wealth in this country, it's very different than it was say 40 years ago. Where and I don't know the exact numbers, but the, the gist of it is that the first time home buyers are for are, are share of global wealth, share of U.S. wealth is uh, far lower than their predecessors uh, when they were that age. And in contrast, at the same on the other side of the same coin, uh, the baby boomers, the the older generation, their share of wealth is far higher than their predecessors' share. And so you have this. You know, the, the, the wealth is with a, a, a big share of the wealth is with people with a low marginal propensity consume and not enough wealth is with the people with a high marginal propensity to consume. So there are things you in theory could do from a policy standpoint in terms of uh, wealth taxes, uh, which I, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, I just that's a, a political question, so I'm not going to veer too much further into that, but hypothetically something like that. Uh, I, I think if you gave some sort of incentive for uh, baby boomers to gift uh, to their kids a generation or their kids some sort of right, if a, you know the baby boomer wants to buy a house, they can you know they can title that over to the kid and, and without it being taxable if they have excess wealth they want to spend. But if, there too, you get into the people with the wealth are going to bid up the houses for you know if, yeah. if if your parents don't have the wealth. That's again a political question. To me, maybe the easiest way to sort of jumpstart that in terms of the affordability, I guess, are really two things. Number one, you could put policies in place to increase supplies of housing, um, which is probably the best way to do it because it's actually economically positive and, and, and it drives real GDP growth. Um, and so that's step one. So that's a policy uh that's, that's, that's something in policy. The other policy step you could, in theory, do would be to um, get rid of student loans, right? Have Biden do an executive order where student loans are forgiven up to fifty thousand uh, dollars, and maybe you mandate if you know you'll do more or you'll do fifty if you immediately use the money on as a down payment for a house. But getting rid of student loans, which again is a political question. Uh, but it's a very easy solution because most of the student debt is owed to the federal government anyway. So it literally is just a, you know, a wave of the pen, you know, uh, um, type of key hit a couple keystrokes and have it done. And immediately you would be putting hundreds or thousands of dollars more into the pockets to be spent of the generation with a very high marginal propensity to consume. So it, there are no easy answers. It's a political question, but there are ways you can do it. It ultimately all comes down to sort of, you know, what what do people what do people want? All right, just two questions to go. Uh, this is kind of an interesting one. You know, the Basel three requirements were first put out. Geez, what five six years ago? I I've lost track because they keep getting postponed, <laughs> and they've been pushed back again. 
uh, for many of the banks uh, all the way into, what, 2023 even. Then we had this uh, net stable funding requirement uh, make you know on unallocated gold in London that we thought was going to kick in at the end of June. Now that's being pushed back as well. I mean, do you think any of this stuff, Luke, will ever actually be implemented? <laughs> or is it just always going to be kicked down the road and extended, you know, and given the banks more time? You know, I had not seen that it had been delayed. Last I heard that the, the June one was that it hadn't been delayed. So if it's been delayed, that is... Um, it's it's hard. To, uh, Luke, it's hard to track. I can't get any information on it myself. Um, and then I saw something just this morning as we speak that somebody said, yeah, they've kicked it to January 2022. I, I haven't confirmed that, but it's really hard to track down the right information. But please go ahead. Yeah, no, interesting. Because it's the, 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 as it relates to gold, it seems as if, the unallocated gold books of the London banks would be treated differently than the allocated gold books uh, with effectively the allocated gold books, not having a capital cost and the unallocated gold books having a big capital cost. And so the, the, the London banks, the LBMA were squawking fairly loudly that this is a problem um, in terms of you know, putting it in terms of higher costs and less liquidity and you know the users of gold around the world will be harmed by this because the costs will rise which is a little disingenuous in my view it's, it's not like you could re- you could raise the price of gold to twenty thousand dollars an ounce and, and it's because it's used in so little like you're not gonna it's, it's not like CPI is going to go up to ten percent because the price of gold goes to twenty thousand dollars an ounce there's no direct connection there um, so say, hey, people who consume gold are going to be harmed by this is a little disingenuous in my view. But it, to the extent it ever gets passed, it seems like it could have a seri- serious implications for uh, the gold market in terms of actually beginning to shift the price discovery in the gold market to being more driven by physical supply and demand rather than um, physical supply and demand minus the expansion of paper derivatives, um, because those paper derivatives will become more expensive to hold on the balance sheet than the actual physical. So um, we'll see where it goes. I mean, there's point. There's been we've been through a several iterations of this going back a, a period of time, and you know it's never mattered uh, since then. So for me, I, I'm, I'm optimistic someday it'll happen because I think it's important over time when you handicap the price of gold, you are handicapping price discovery and basically all other markets uh, over time. So I think it's important if you believe in the in, in free markets and the importance to society and economies and sustainability of, of, of free markets and economies. But um, I'm not holding my breath uh, that that. You know, I I don't want to put too much stock in it because, like you said, it just keeps getting delayed. But it is interesting, these net stable funding ratios, uh, the way they're worded, uh, the fact that the U.S. Fed was meeting with the LBMA in 2017 about them mm-hmm. uh, when sort of consensus is that everybody knows the Fed doesn't care at all about gold. Yet here they are meeting with the LBMA about these net stable funding ratios around gold that would seem to have significant implications for the difference between allocated and unallocated gold. That to me is always one of those. Watch what they do, not what they say. So we'll see. Uh, I know it's not really a, a definitive answer. I just don't think there's a definitive answer to be had at the moment, unfortunately. Yep, Luke, you're being very generous with your time. I'll just sneak in one last question. Uh, it has to do with Bitcoin because I know you follow it, and a lot of folks own some Bitcoin with all their physical metal. Uh, what is your long-term forecast? Can it become a part of the monetary system? And and what happens once all of the Bitcoin is finally mined? 
um, there's still an extensive cost, you know, of electricity to to maintain the system. Um, so is it a viable thing in the end, do you think? Yeah, I think it's – so Bitcoin is really interesting to me because it is, uh, in a lot of ways, what it, – it, it is a lot of ways uh, does what gold does uh, at least as good as gold does it uh, in terms of the finite supply versus the low supply. And there's a few things where you, you I think gold does things better than Bitcoin. One of these is uh, exactly what you refer to, which is the energy, ener- what I would call an energy debt owed to it, right? You own a physical gold coin or physical gold bar. That is final settlement. Uh, there is no liability attached to it. Uh, Bitcoin is also a bearer asset in in a lot of ways, with the exception that, to your point, you still need the network needs to exist for that bearer asset to be viable. So it's part of the network, and the network needs electricity, and the electricity has a cost. And at the moment, the miners are being compensated based on um, the ability to mine Bitcoin uh, that they can then sell. And at some point, when it's all mined, then in theory. Uh, the energy cost by that time of keeping the network going will be even bigger. And so the, to me, it speaks to the need that you would probably have to have fees rise significantly at that point to the miners. Now it's as long as the price rises that I think can make sense. Um, And so that's something that will, I think someday be a bigger deal, but I don't think it matters for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, in terms of what we're talking about for Bitcoin now. Um, and in terms of a price target, <laughs> the, 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 some of the people I watched and, and, and talked to that I have been the most accurate, they've been very much following the stock-to-flow model and, and a range of uh, sort of standard deviations on either side of the, of the main stock-to-flow model. And they're pretty consistently calling for $100,000 by later this year, early next year, and over time, you know, then, then maybe a pullback uh, if it follows the patterns of the last several happenings uh, and then uh, moves higher from there. So I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very interested to see if it continues to follow that stock to flow model, given the lack of derivatives, the, the successful expansion of lack of successful expansion of, of paper derivatives on Bitcoin. Um, to me right now, my gut says that 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 stock to flow model is probably still valid. Um, so I, I'm watching for successful paper derivatives uh, and especially unallocated Bitcoin derivatives to, to build up, to change that. And thus far they just haven't been successful. And a big part of that is because it's, it's easier to buy physical Bitcoin uh, than it is paper Bitcoin, which is not true for gold where it's, you know, right. so they, you know, futures sell Bitcoin off sharply, you know, a billion people with smartphones can jump on their phone and buy, buy some chunk of a Bitcoin. And, and that's much harder to do in terms of getting the physical gold out of the vault from somebody um, when you see it happen with gold. There's a lot of people that do do that, uh, but that's, uh, uh, that's a, a bit of a difference. So that's, that's how I thought about Bitcoin, at least where I stand now. Luke, I sure like talking to you. I can ask you about any question on any subject and you give a, a wise <laughs> reasoned response, intelligent response. Just great. It's always great having you Thank in you. for these Ask the Expert segments. Tell everybody again uh, where all your thoughts are summarized so they can find you and subscribe. Absolutely. Thank you. No, it's at FFTT, so Frank, Frank, Tom, Tom, dash LLC.com. You can find out 
what we're up to, our different product categories and how you can order them. And if you're interested in, in following more daily thoughts, et cetera, uh, like you said, I have a fairly active Twitter feed. It's at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N, all one word. And one last request from us, it's brought money. Uh, obviously, another great interview here. If you enjoy these Ask the Expert segments or if you enjoy the weekly wrap-up podcast, please give us a like, maybe a subscribe, and maybe even a share on whichever channel you're listening to. It will help us to expand the audience. Again, we've been speaking with Luke Groman for this uh, month's Ask the Expert segment. Luke, thank you so much for your time. It's just been fantastic. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking to you, Craig. Always enjoy it. And from all of us at Sprott Money News at SprottMoney.com, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again next month.